But uh, tonight I'm going to read from Galatians chapter 5. I hope this is relevant too, by the way. But Galatians chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 16 down to verse 26. I'm reading from the New International Version. Galatians chapter 5, and some of you will have your Bibles with you. Some of you may not. If you've come to stay for the weekend, you've got a Bible, bring it to the meetings you come to. We have nothing new to say. And everything that's said from this platform you need to see is written there in the Word of God. Don't believe anything because you happen to like the environment in which it was said. Believe it because you can see it. And I'm going to read Matthew, uh, Galatians 5 and verse 16. And Paul writes, So I say, live by the Spirit. And you are not gratified the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. There are lots of things in those verses. We're not going to talk about them all. I'm going to pick one verse out of all of that and read it to you again. It's verse 17. I want to talk about this verse. It says, for the sinful nature I just want to make a comment there. The New International Version take a little liberty when they use the term sinful nature. That is a bit of a theological term, and uh, it really only dates from the 5th century when a man called Augustine tended to use that and popularize that idea. The literal word used here is the word flesh. In other words, what that means is the natural human being, all that a natural person is in himself, apart from God. And that's why I want to understand it. For the sinful nature of the flesh, the natural person, desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh, the natural person. Now that is true for every Christian here tonight, whether you've been a Christian for a week, or you've been a Christian for 50 years. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, there begins a civil war in your soul that will continue until the day you die. The natural you, the old nature, the flesh, will be in conflict with the Spirit who's come to live in you, and that will be a relentless, constant, never-ending battle. It'll be one of your biggest problems in life, and there'll be no end to it. I'm sorry. Let me read you what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, he said this, he said, I do not understand what I do. And by the way, Paul is being very honest here. People debate whether Paul was speaking about before he was a Christian or later. And I don't want to participate in that debate because that would be tedious for some of you tonight. But he's speaking in the present tense. 
And he says of himself, I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For the good I do is not the good. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Let me explain in simple language. What he's saying is this: There are things in life that are good and they're right, and I want to do them, and I say I'm going to do them, but I don't. There are things in life that are bad, and I know they're bad, and I say I will never do them again. That is the last time I will ever do that. But you never guess what happens. I do it. Anybody here got that problem tonight? Just raise your hand a moment, would you? There's a few dishonest folks around. <laughs> it's a problem you've got. It's a problem I've got. Paul says in verse 23, he said, it is sin living in me. There he's not talking, or rather not in verse 23, but earlier. But there he's not talking about sin as actions. He's talking about sin as a principle. In verse 23, what he says there is the law of sin. In other words, he says, a bit like the law of gravity. If I hold this pen in the air and let it go, it's going to fall. Not because I give it a push, but because there's a law in the heart of the earth called gravity, which says if it goes up, it'll come down. And if I push it the other way, it's still eventually going to get subject to the law of gravity and come down. Gravity is a very useful law, of course. Otherwise, if you're sitting on the ceiling, it doesn't look very comfortable. It's a good law, as many of you will know, invented by an Englishman called Sir Isaac Newton. <laughs> I have no idea why he's credited with uh, identifying gravity. Everybody had sat on the ground prior to that. But anyway, he gave it a name because an apple hit him on the head or whatever. Now says Paul, there's something in me called the law of sin, a bit like the law of gravity. He says, deep down inside, I can really, really want to do what is right. But I don't. Because this law is pulling me down. Now let me tell you something. You'll never truly understand yourself and I will never really understand myself until I face and accept this as a fact about ourselves. As Paul says in verse 18, nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, my natural self. It's a pretty devastating verse, isn't it? But I'll tell you something, if you don't believe that, you'll try to refine yourself. You'll make promises to God about how good you're going to be from now on, and you'll fail. You'll go through the process of dedicating yourself to God, and a week later, rededicating yourself to God, and a week later, re-rededicating yourself to God. And despite the greatest intentions, you'll fail. Some of you will go home on Tuesday from this convention full of a new zeal. By this time next week, you'll be flat on the ground again. But don't be too disappointed by that. It won't take God by surprise. You'll never be a bigger failure than God already knows you to be. You may be shocked by the state of your heart and the capability of your heart. God won't be. Because all the wickedness of your old nature, which you're capable yesterday, you'll be capable of today, and you'll be capable of tomorrow, and you'll be capable of 50 years from now. Some of you won't. You'll be gone by then. But those of you who are young and healthy... All the weaknesses that you have today... You will have 20 years from tonight. Because the old nature, as the living Bible paraphrases it, is rotten through and through. Now, isn't this an encouraging message? Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> I mean, isn't this doing you good? Well, if that's true, 
and it's important that I make very clear that that is true, there is something else that is equally true if you are a Christian tonight. And it's this, that the day you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God came to live in you, and the Spirit of God who came to live in you is totally opposite to everything you are. You see, the old nature, you, is incorrigibly bad. But the new nature of the Spirit of God, which He has come to live in you, is incorrigibly good. Now, if you don't know what incorrigibly means, it simply means you go on being bad. You seem to not help being bad. But the Spirit in you is good. Now, to understand this, may I explain some otherwise confusing statements that we have in the Scripture. Let me turn you, if you've got your Bible, to 1 John. If you're not sure what that is, find Revelation, turn left, and it's second along. Actually, don't go too fast, because 3 John and 2 John you might miss. Oh, and, oh it's 4 along, I'm sorry. It's just next door anyway, but 1. 1 John chapter 3, and verse 9. Let me read you something John wrote here. This verse will be very confusing to you, probably, to many of us, unless you understand what I'm trying to say tonight, and we'll say by the time we finish tonight. 1 John 3 and verse 9, John says this. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, what in the world do you make of that verse? John says anyone born of God will not sin. In fact, he says he cannot go on sinning. Now, let me take the chapter 5 in case you think, you know, um, John sort of had a little blip when he was writing that chapter. 1 John 5 and verse 18. John says there, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, what is John saying in those two verses? He says the one born of God will not continue to sin. And then he says the one born of God does not continue to sin. Is John saying there that a Christian is someone who will never sin? Well, have a look at John, 1 John chapter 1. Same book, same writer, writing to the same people in verse 8. And he says this, 1 John 1 and verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now he says there, if anybody claims to be without sin, he is kidding himself. He won't kid his wife or his husband or his kids or his parents and probably not his neighbors. He just kid himself. I actually met somebody once who uh, told me at the end of a meeting that he hadn't sinned for 15 years. I said to him, that's marvelous. I said, are you married? He said, yes. Why? I said, is your wife here at the meeting? He said, yes. I said, which is she? He said, she's the one with the red coat on. I said, uh, would you mind if I talk to her for a while? He said, what about? I said, about your sinlessness. He said to me, and this is true, he said to me, she doesn't agree with me. <laughs> so I said to him, I said, why doesn't she agree with you? And he said, well, she defines sin differently to me. And I'll tell you something. Everybody who claims sinlessness has redefined sin. I said, how do you, how do you define sin? He defined it by a verse in Hebrews 10, verse 26, which says, If we sin willfully, after we have received knowledge of the truth, etc., 
In other words, he defines sin as deliberately, willfully getting up one morning and saying to yourself, I would like to have a really good sin today. Which one shall I do? I'll do a really juicy one. Now that's how he defines sin, basically. Now I hope no Christian wakes up in the morning saying, well, I've got a day off, I'm going to have a really good sin today. My problem is I may get up in the morning and say, I would love not to sin today. By nine o'clock, I'm saying, God, I'm sorry. I've done it again. But this sounds like a contradiction in John's letter. I'm sure the folks who got this letter from John said, this, this fellow's a bit contradictory. He says, if anybody says he does not sin, he deceives himself. And then he says that the person born of God does not sin, cannot sin, will not go on sinning. What is he talking about? How do you reconcile what seems like a contradiction there? Well, it seems the only satisfactory answer is to ask the question, who is born of God? And the answer, and I'll show you this from 1 John chapter 5, the answer is to say that the one born of God is Jesus Christ born into your heart, into your life. Because 1 John chapter 5, and I deliberately keep to the same epistle here because uh, John needs to explain himself. And he says in verse 11 and 12, 1 John chapter 5, he says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son, that is Jesus. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now says John, eternal life is not something you receive in a little package from God. Eternal life is someone. It is the life of Jesus. And he says, the one who has Jesus, when Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, has been born into somebody's life, and it is the life of Jesus in them. Then he says, they have eternal life. And the life of Jesus, born into you, the moment you came in repentance and faith, is a life that cannot, and does not, and will not sin. However, the old you... The old flesh, the old nature, can sin and does sin, and it's its nature to sin. Which is why Paul said in that chapter that we began with, there is a battle, there's a civil war, I've called it. A civil war in the soul. The spirit who cannot sin and does not sin, and the natural you who does sin and loves to sin, fighting, fighting, fighting all the time. Now listen, you can try and discipline your old nature, you can try and refine it. You can try and house train it. You know the way you house train a cat? We have a couple of cats because uh, somebody found them in a bag running across a road in the town near where we live. Because somebody, they were little kittens. They wanted to get rid of them, put them in a bag in the road, hoping as the bag moved around the road, a car would hit it. Well, somebody kindly, as far as the cats were concerned, not as far as we were concerned, found the bag. Now, my wife had said to somebody the day before, we wouldn't mind getting a cat because we have a few mice. So she came with this bag of kittens. <laughs> and uh, we, have, uh, we have those, they're now growing up, but we have to house train them. We say, cats, you don't do that. We put their nose in what they shouldn't do. And when the nose in, you go, poo, like that, you see. And the cats, ah, I should never do that. <laughs> so next time it feels in the mood, it says, uh-oh, I'm going to get a wallop. <laughs> so it lips outside and does it in the right place. If they jump onto the table and eat the lunch, we pick them up by the scruff of the neck and say, cat, you don't do that, you see? It's a cat. <laughs> they used to be white cats, they're blue, blue now, but anyway. <laughs> now listen, you can try and house train your nature, you can 
Train your nature to behave yourself, to be reasonably respectable. But I'll tell you what you'll never do. You'll never change the old nature, and you'll never change its inclination to sin. Let me illustrate this. When I was 18, I left school. I'd sensed at that stage, long term, God might lead me to some kind of Christian work. So I decided that before I did that, I ought to probably do a proper job. <laughs> These are the people called it. <laughs> And I applied for a job working on a large farm in Zimbabwe because farming was my background. I went out to Zimbabwe and spent a couple of years on a large farm there. My job was being in charge of all the livestock. And the biggest uh, set of livestock were the pigs. We had over a thousand pigs, which we bred for bacon. Now, I got to enjoy pigs very much. In fact, I got to really like pigs. And, uh, of course, I... I'm aware that pigs are a much maligned animal. People normally don't think warmly of pigs. If you say to someone, you're a pig, they don't say, oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> that's not normally a compliment. <laughs> because pigs have an image of being dirty and smelly and they're roaming around in puddles and so on. Now, I understand why that is true. You see, I understand pigs. The reason why pigs do this is because they do not have any sweat glands. It was an omission when God made pigs. He just didn't give them any sweat glands. Now, human beings sweat. You know that. You, you maybe noticed it somewhere tonight. I don't know. <laughs> but we sweat. I heard about two men in a lift one day. And these two men were going up in the lift. And one man said to the other, one of our deodorants isn't working. <laughs> The other man said, it must be yours, I don't have any. <laughs> now, it's very convenient that we sweat. I mean, it's very convenient that we can cool ourselves down. Dogs perspire by their tongues. You get a dog hot and it just dribbles everywhere because that's its cooling mechanism. That's its, its means of perspiring. But uh, for some reason, pigs were never given the ability to sweat. So pigs actually can get very, very hot, and pigs are very susceptible to heart failure. Now, in Zimbabwe, it's true. I mean, pigs have heart attacks. <laughs> we, had, we lost pigs from time to time. If you were herding them around, and it was in the heat of the day, they'd suddenly fall over and, whoa, and just kick their legs out and die of heart attacks. Just get too hot. Now, it's for that reason, pigs have learned over the years, if I want to cool down, I need a puddle. Now, it might be a beautifully clean puddle, but the moment the pigs rolled over it, and of course, it stirred up all the dirt, so pigs are always rolling in puddles, simply because it's a means of cooling down. Now, supposing, as I work with these pigs, I said, this, is, this image pigs have is a terrible image. I'm going to change the image and the reputation of pigs. I'm going to prove to the world, if you give them the right environment, and I change the environment, pigs can be beautiful. So I adopt one of the pigs. I take it into my home, I give it a bath. I said to the pig, pig, you're going to learn to be a decent pig. In fact, you're going to be as good as a human being. And I teach the pig to bath itself. I teach it to go to the toilet properly. I dress it in a nice little white shirt, little velvet shorts, and I put a beautiful ribbon in its tail. I teach it to sit at the table and eat its food, you know, properly with its little trotters, you know, eat it sort of... Bacon and egg. No, not bacon, just egg. <laughs> just egg. <laughs> and I work hard on training my pig, but of course, 
as I put it to bed every night between lovely clean sheets, I make sure, very sure, that I never, in the training process, leave the back door open. The pig never has a way out. But after about three months of having taught and trained and house trained my pig, one day I'm a little bit casual, I leave the back door open, and the smell of the farmyard comes wafting through the door. And the pig sitting there at the table suddenly says, that's a very familiar smell. <laughs> Smells like muck. <laughs> Smells like dirt. Boy, that's a beautiful smell. And before I have a chance to move and shut the door, the pig has left the seat at the table and he's bolted through the door, run down to the farmyard. And of course, he started to get warm running down to the farmyard and he's found a beautiful puddle, just what I need. And he rolls over in the puddle in his beautiful white shirt and his lovely velvet shorts and his tail gets all tangled up in the muck. And by the time I run down behind him, there's the pig with a big smile on his snout, <laughs> with his legs in the air. And I catch up and my pig says, I'm home. This is where I belong. Because although I can house train my pig and train my pig, I'll never change the pig. A pig is a pig. Now, pardon me for saying this, pardon me for saying this, but you're a pig. <laughs> Did you know that? You have a pig nature. You can refine it. You can educate it to behave. You can house train it. In the right company, you can discipline it, but you'll never change the basic nature. That's why you may be okay in the right company, but you leave town on business, some of you men, when nobody knows you. What happened? You leave home and go to university, and for the first time in your life, mum, dad are not breathing down your neck. What happens? You see, you've simply house-trained the old nature. And the moment you're out of the restrictions that were put upon you, you discover you're a pig. <laughs> Listen, let me read you again what Paul said in Romans chapter 7. And I want you to see if you can pick out a recurring word that crops up in these verses. Romans chapter 7. Let me just uh, read some what I read. I'll read it very quickly. And just if you notice, there's a recurring word that keeps cropping up. He says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have a desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I myself will do it. It's sin living in me. So I find this law at work when I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Anybody notice the word that kept cropping up? Did you notice it? I tried to help you just a little bit. <laughs> Do you know 38 times? Yes, 38 times in 10 verses, Paul says, I, me, my, I, I try, I know what's right, I want to do it, I try my hardest, but I fail. And then he says at the end of all of that, verse 24, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this pig? This body of death. This natural me. Notice the question he asks there. It's an important question. He doesn't say, what will rescue me? Is there an experience you can give me? He doesn't say, is there a technique for me overcoming this old self that's pulling me down, this law of sin which he talks about in those verses? 
He doesn't say, is there a program you can put me through and at the end of 10 weeks, I'll be okay. The question he asks is this, not how, but who will rescue me? He says, I need someone who can rescue me. Then he gives his answer in the next verse. Thanks be to God, it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in three verses later, which is in chapter 8 and verse 2, and Paul didn't put the chapter divisions in, this is the same section. He says, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul says, knowing what I am in my own natural self, my old natural me, even though I'm an apostle who's blazed a trail through the Mediterranean world and established churches and written 13 books, at the end of it at least, that belong to the New Testament. Even though I'm the great apostle Paul, I'm a wretch, I'm a pig, there's an old nature in me, he says, which is pulling me down every time I let it have its way. How can I be different? Who will rescue me? It's Jesus Christ, he says, through the law of the spirit of life. In Christ, he sets me free from the law of sin. In other words, there's this law of sin, like the law of gravity pulling me down, but he says, there's a new law. It's a more powerful law than the law of sin. It's the law of the spirit of life in Christ. It's Jesus Christ living his life in me. And the law of the spirit of life sets me free and gives me the capability in a dirty world of being clean. Let me illustrate that. About 18 months or so ago, I was in the city of Cape Town in South Africa to speak at a week-long series of meetings, a Bible convention, a bit like this, I suppose. And uh, I spoke each night that week on the theme, the Christian life is supernatural. What I meant by that was the kind of thing that Gary has been talking about in the morning Bible studies, where Jesus said in John 15, without me, you can do nothing. That the branch that we've heard about is utterly dependent upon the vine and the life and the source and the fruit all has its origin in the vine. And I was making the point that no human being can live the Christian life. God never said a human being can. That's why he's given to us his own spirit. Because the Christian life is supernatural. It's living in dependency on the spirit of God. Now I talked about that all that week. On about the Tuesday night, we began on the Sunday, I think it was. On the Tuesday night, a man came to me in his mid-30s. He said to me this. He said, I am very sure that what you're saying this week is true. But what do I have to do to make it work? I said, well, I appreciate your question, but it's the wrong question. You're saying, what do I have to do? What is the method? What is the technique? I said, the question you should be asking is, who makes it work? Until you understand it is a divine act of Christ living in us. He said, but that isn't practical. I understand that, he said, but I've got to practically do some things to make it work. What have I got to do? I said to him, come back tomorrow night. You're jumping the gun. Well, he came back the next night, and at the end of that meeting, he came to me, and he said, look, if I had any doubt at all last night about whether what you're saying is true or not, I am really sure tonight it's true. But I still haven't grasped what I've got to do to make it work. I'm frustrated. You're not telling me what I have to do. And I said, you haven't really understood. You're still asking the wrong question. He said, but there's got to be some way whereby it happens. And I said, well, yes, you live in repentance and by faith. He said, but tell me what to do. I said, come back tomorrow night. So he came back the next night. He came to me at the end of that meeting. He was a lovely guy. I got to enjoy him over those few days. And he said to me, no, I really did. He said to me, look, I am 
I don't need convincing that what you're saying is true. But I need to sit and talk to you properly. He said, when are you free tomorrow? He told me when he was free through the morning, and I wasn't free at all in the morning. He said he was working all afternoon when I was free in part of the afternoon. Then he suddenly said this, are you free at 4.30 tomorrow afternoon? I said, well, yes, I am at 4.30. He said, well, look, maybe we can meet then. He said, uh, my job is that I'm a helicopter pilot. I work for a charter company, and most of our work is flying stuff out of the ships that come around the Cape. At that stage, sanctions, economic sanctions, were being leveled against South Africa by most countries, and so the ships weren't allowed to stop, but we would fly things out by helicopter, supplies, and, you know, bring things back, and sometimes bring sick people back, and so on. He said, that's the bread and butter of what we do, but every Friday afternoon, I have the most boring job of the week. He said, I have to take up a policeman and a radio announcer, and I go up at 4.30 for 90 minutes, an hour and a half, during the peak rush hour traffic. He said, all the traffic goes out of Cape Town on a Friday night. People leave business, and they drive out and get out into the country, and so they're big jams and pile-ups up very often. So my job is to fly around, and uh, if there's a hold-up with the traffic, the policeman radios a message back to his headquarters, and they send out a patrol car or whatever's necessary. Every 15 minutes, the radio announcer gives a live uh, traffic report on the local radio. He said, for me, it's just sitting there for 90 minutes, bored, just going around in circles. He said, but there are four seats in the helicopter. He said, if you're free, would you be willing to come with me? And you can have the fourth seat, and we can talk. I said, I'd love to come with you. Even if we don't talk, I'll come with you. <laughs> he said, all right, come down to the helipad at 4 o'clock. We'll have a cup of tea. And he said, you have to sign a paper to say that I'm not responsible for you. <laughs> well, I went down at 4 o'clock. And uh, at this helipad, there were two helicopters. One was a big, sturdy one, probably, I don't know, 15 seats, 20 seats, great big propeller, great big rotary blades, a long tail, a big blade, rotary blade on the back tail. And that's the only one I could see when I arrived. But then the other side of it, there was this thing that looked like a bubble car. Do you have bubble cars in Australia? Just a big glass bubble with a little propeller on, with a little, you know, propeller on top, and a tail with a little propeller at the back. No wheels, just, uh, you know, like skis. The other one had some wheels. And uh, I said to my friend, I, I met him on the helipad, I said, which is ours? <laughs> he said, the little one. I said, the little one? He said, the little one. I said, but it's very little. He said, oh, it's fine. I said, why is it chained to the ground? He said, to stop it blowing away. <laughs> we get strong winds off the Atlantic. I said, you mean that thing could just blow away? It looked like it. It looks like you could pick it up, you know, and blow with it. I said, why, why can't we go on the big one? He said, we don't need to go on the big one. It's not as maneuverable for one thing. This one's perfectly safe. I said, are you sure? He said, yes. I said, why do you want me to sign that piece of paper then? He said, oh, it's just a formality. <laughs> I said, you tell me that thing can fly and it can take you and me and two other people? He said, no problem at all. I said, I'm feeling very nervous. I'm used to standing on the ground where I'm secure. <laughs> I've never flown in a helicopter before, and uh, I, I really am very nervous. He said, you don't have to be. I said, what do I have to do to be safe? 
He said nothing. Get in. Put your seatbelt on. I said, I'm sure what you're saying is right. <laughs> but I've got to do something because I'm nervous. Can I flap? He said, flap? I said, <laughs> he said, of course you don't flap. I said, tell me again. He said, get in, sit down, relax. I said, and do what? Do nothing. Why not? Because there's nothing to do. Why not? Because the helicopter does it. What do you mean? He said, look, when this rotary blade begins to rotate, although this isn't so many words what he said, although you've been held to the ground by the law of gravity, he says a new law takes over, the law of aerodynamics, and it's far more powerful than gravity. And we'll lift off the ground and you'll be totally safe. I said, look, I, I'm really sure what you're saying is true. <laughs> but you're not being practical. You're not being realistic. What have I got to do? And he said to me, are you kidding me? <laughs> I said, look, what did you tell me all this week, these last three nights? He said, but there's no relationship between the two. I said, but there is. And I showed him this verse. I had a New Testament in my pocket. I said, look at Romans 8 verse 2. The law of the spirit of life in Christ sets me free from the law of sin. The law of sin pulls me down. You've got that problem. I've got that problem. It's pulling me down all the time. But there's a new law. It's the law of Jesus Christ, the presence of Jesus Christ living in me who sets me free and gives me the ability to begin to live a clean life and a good life and a godly life. I said, and you're telling me that although the law of gravity pins me to the ground normally, there's a new, more powerful law, the law of aerodynamics. You say, just sit in the plane, let it do the work for you. I said, yeah, I know, the, I know the analogy breaks down at some stage. Of course it does. But the principle is true. We got into the helicopter, and we, we took off in reverse. I didn't know helicopters reversed. We just began to grow backwards. And then we took off. There wasn't much traffic that night. He said, we've got time to have a look around. He said, I'll show you President de Klerk's mansion. We go over it low and I'll show you his gardens. I'll only show you one. Second time they'll shoot us down. First time they'll catch you by surprise. <laughs> and we did. We came up and they came out, you know, over his back garden of his mansion. Then he said, let me show you how close we can get to Table Mountain. Table Mountain in Cape Town, which is quite a, a sheer uh, mountainside. I said, you don't have to. He said, I'd like to because I want to have a look at something. <laughs> He said, I'll show you where my mother lives. We went to visit his mother, and we buzzed around and buzzed around, and he said, she'll come out in a minute. Sure enough, she came out, waved, and went back in again. So I do it every week. <laughs> and I said to him, don't you get the point? You and I are defying every law that normally keeps people to the ground. Up until 100 and so, 150 years ago, people never, never, never broke the law of gravity, but you've discovered a new law, a more powerful law. It sets us free. And I said... The whole point of the Christian life is Jesus Christ lives in you in order that Jesus Christ in you does for you what you cannot, cannot do for yourself. The Christian life is not something you do for Jesus and then you pat yourself on the back, we've made it. It's something Jesus does in you and for you. It's supernatural. It's miraculous, which is why you can go to any man, any woman, any boy, any girl from any background with any history who's in the grip of any habit, who's been guilty of any sin. And you can say, you can live the Christian life. They probably say, don't be crazy. Yes, you can. Because you see, as you allow Jesus Christ to live in you, there's a new power at your disposal. It's the life of Jesus. The law of the spirit of life sets you free from the law of sin and death. And by the way, if there's some folks here tonight and you've never become a Christian, this is exactly why you need to become a Christian. 
because it's not you asking Christ to forgive you of your sins and then trying to do your best for him. If that was your understanding, you'd probably say, I could never keep it up and you'd be right. But it's coming and saying, Lord Jesus Christ, not only do you forgive me of my past, but by your Holy Spirit, you come to live in me a new life that is supernatural. It is you in me by your Holy Spirit setting me free. Well, if that's true, what do we do about the old nature? There's only one thing the scripture tells you to do with the old nature. And it's this. Not refine it. Not house train it. I mean, we need discipline. We'll start in just a moment. But God's remedy for the old nature is very simple. Crucify it. Let me read you what Paul said in the verses we read in Galatians chapter 5 earlier. Galatians 5 and verse 24. He says this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature, its passions, and its desires. Now says Paul, the solution to the old nature is to crucify it. Let me read you another verse. Galatians 2 and verse 20, but early in the same epistle. Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ. That is the old me. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, recognize this, that on the cross, not only did Jesus Christ die for me, but on the cross, I died in Christ. God's verdict about me is that I'm good for one thing, crucifixion. In order that having put my old nature, reckon it to be crucified with Christ, he might replace my old nature with the very life of Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In Romans 7, just before Paul explains what we've looked at in Romans Rather, in Romans 6, just before he explains what uh, we've looked at in Romans 7 and 8, in Romans 6 and verse 11, Paul says there, in the same way, he says, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, I cannot explain that to you. We can only proclaim it. Understand this, so when Jesus Christ died in God's reckoning, you died. I died. The old nature was good only for crucifixion. And Jesus on the cross, I died in Christ. And to recognize the old me, don't try to refine it. Don't try to improve it. Replace it. Reckon yourself, count yourself, as he says there, dead in order that now turning from my own resources, turning from my own abilities, turning from my own strength, turning from my own wisdom, I am now relying upon the indwelling life of Jesus by his Holy Spirit to be in me and do for me what I cannot do for myself. But don't fall into the trap of concentrating on trying to die. People sometimes ask the question, how do I crucify myself? It's a bad question. How do I die to myself? It's a bad question. I'll tell you why. Concentrate instead on saying, how does Jesus live in me? Because if you concentrate on the positive, then... The dying will look after itself. When I took off in that helicopter, we did not try to overcome gravity. We did overcome gravity, but I wasn't sitting there saying, now then, let's renounce gravity. Oh, gravity, I renounce your power over me. <laughs> That'd be a waste of time. 
Instead, I say, listen, gravity is there and gravity is powerful, but there's a new law, a more powerful law. And I sit in the helicopter and subject myself to the helicopter, submit myself to it, trust it, and the helicopter, as I sit there, begins to break the law of gravity. Now, gravity doesn't give up any more than your old nature will never give up. If halfway around that 90-minute flight around Cape Town, I said to my friend, the pilot, <clears throat> I said, hey, you really encouraged me. I didn't know I could fly before now. We've done a good job. I'm feeling very confident now. What I'd like to do is to get out and go back on my own, see if I can do it myself. <laughs> the moment I step outside of the helicopter, the law of gravity takes over, and I become a lump of strawberry jam in the middle of Cape Town somewhere. <laughs> Listen, the moment you stop trusting Jesus moment by moment and saying, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting you today by your Holy Spirit to live in me your life, and to reproduce in me your character, to do through me your work. It is a supernatural work of God. It is God doing it in me. As you trust him, he'll work. But the moment, of course, you begin to relax and say, hey, I can handle this myself, you discover the law of sin is right there. And down you come. I had a friend when I was a teenager, and God saved him. And one day, my friend and I were talking to somebody else who was not a Christian. My friend said to this other person, he said, you know, I used to have a terrible temper. When I became a Christian, God dealt with my temper. He said this, for two years, I've never lost my temper. And he did have a bad temper. I was on the receiving end of it sometimes. And it was bad. He said, for two years, I've not lost my temper. And that was a wonderful testimony. But you know something? The very next day, my friend lost his temper. For the first time in two years. Why? I think what happened was this. He thought, hey, I've mastered my temper. Woo, that's wonderful. The pig is gone. And God said, all right, try it. Live as best you can. He discovered the pig was alive. Down he went. Now let me finish by saying this. In practice, if this is true, what do I have to do? You see, my friend in Cape Town was absolutely right. What do I have to do? You don't become zombies. You don't sit back and say, well, God, I just trust you. Hope it'll happen. Let me give you two things very quickly. We have about three minutes left, and I'll give you them very quickly. We haven't time to talk about them as much as I might have done. Uh, but just quickly, these two things. Romans 8 and verse 5. This is all the same context. Romans 8 and verse 5. He says this. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Notice that. He says the person, the Christian, who lives according to the flesh has their mind set on the things of the flesh. But the one who lives in accordance with the Spirit has their mind set on the things of the Spirit. Notice there the relationship between the mind and the reality of spiritual power. I said yesterday, some of you were here, that repentance, the word repentance is a very simple word. It literally means to change the mind. I think I said then repentance is not, is not something primarily you feel or something even primarily you do. It's something you think. It's a change of thinking. And that isn't just something you do when you become a Christian. The Christian life is lived with a disposition of a changed mind. In other words, as Paul wrote to Romans 12, be transformed by renewing of your mind, that you feed your mind with Christ, you feed your mind with truth, you feed your mind with the Word of God. David asks the question, how does a young man keep his way pure? And he answers it by guarding it according to your word. And then he says, your word I've hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. It's not that the word has some magic qualities to it, that the word is powerful. God is powerful and God alone. But the word of God 
is the revelation of God. It's through the written word. We know the living word. And as I allow the word of God to occupy my mind, then that takes me back to God himself and in dependency upon him, he empowers me. It's not a psychological trick that makes you holy and godly, but your mind, which is set on what the Spirit desires, enables the Spirit then to produce his own character in us because the mind is the initial avenue of all spiritual experience. It all begins in the mind, and we haven't time to elaborate that point. As a man thinks in his heart, says the authorized version of a verse in Proverbs, so is he. What you think you are. I once saw a slogan that said, you're not what you think you are, but what you think you are. You understand that? You know what you think you are, but what you think you are. What you think you are. You, they say we are what we eat. Isn't that right? We are what we eat. For some of you look like hamburgers. That's what you eat. <laughs> Every bit of my body I originally ate. I originally ate this little finger. I don't know what it was. It may have been a sausage or something, but I ate every component of my finger. More importantly, especially for the Christian, you are what you think. So the first thing, without time to elaborate it, he says, in the same context, it's the Spirit of God in us who sets us free, but he says the one who lives according to the Spirit has their mind set on what the Spirit desires. And secondly, Galatians 6 and verse 8 to 9, it's one of the reasons why these conventions happen. It's one of the reasons why it's so good. If you can get up to these conventions, your mind becomes filled with the truth of the Word of God. And in the days that follow, you can live on it and you can regurgitate it and meditate on it. But the second thing, Galatians 6, again following on the verses we read earlier, and verse 8 and 9 says this, The one who sows to please the sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now he says if you plant, if you sow things that please the, nature, the sinful nature, you'll reap the consequences. Destruction. Not hell there, speaking to believers. But that destruction it speaks of when we're tried by fire. And everything's burned up. That's of no consequence. But if you sow to the Spirit, you plant the things of the Spirit, you reap life, life in all its fullness. In other words, if you play with sin as a Christian, you play with temptation. You corrupt your mind as a Christian by the things you read, by the things you watch, by the conversations we hold, by the things we become engrossed with. You'll be planting seeds and seeds germinate and seeds grow and seeds produce fruit. You sow the seeds of the Spirit. You seek to get to know Christ, and you seek to love Him, and you seek to trust Him, and you seek to serve Him, and you're taken up with His interests, and you sow the seeds of the Spirit in your heart, you reap the fruit, real life. I like the way Paul said in verse 9, immediately following this, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. He says that uh, you'll reap the harvest, but he says also, don't be impatient. We grow from one degree of glory to another into his image. There's no such thing as instant sanctification. There's no such thing as perfection in any, way, any case in this life. But there's no such thing as instant godliness. You'll never arrive at that. You'll grow from one degree of glory to another. We grow in godliness and we grow in fruitfulness because recognizing it's the Spirit of God living in me. Flesh wars against the spirit. The flesh hankers for the dirt. That's true of the oldest Christian in this place tonight. It's true of the youngest Christian. And it'll remain true till you die. The old nature will always be there and always want to go to the dirt. 
You wouldn't believe, you probably would if you're honest about yourself, you wouldn't believe I was going to say the things that come into my mind, the things I'd love to do with nobody who's watching, except that you have the same problem. But the wonderful thing is this, you say, Holy Spirit of God, you've come to live in me the life of Jesus. And it's the Spirit of God who sets me free. And I trust you. And I say, Lord Jesus, it's not what I do for you, it's what you do for me. Every day I trust you. I want to know you better. I want my mind to be set on what the Spirit desires. I want to sow the things of the Spirit in my heart. And if you don't give up, he says, you'll reap a harvest, you'll grow, you'll be godly, you'll be fruitful, you'll be Christ-like, and you go out into this world. And something about your life will let people know Jesus Christ is alive and in business because they see something in you that's inexplicable apart from him. Jesus will let your light shine before men. They see your good works and do what? Pat you on the back? Make a video about your good works? <laughs> Write a book about them? No, see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Why? Because they look at you and they'll say, this is God. This is miraculous. This is supernatural. It's God producing in you his own character. So you abide in me, let me abide in you, and you'll produce fruit. Guaranteed. It's inevitable, the inevitable consequence of letting Jesus Christ live his life and fill you with the Spirit in you. What well, does that make sense? Because time has gone. If it doesn't make sense, sorry, you've wasted the evening. But my prayer is that there'll be some folks here tonight, and although you may have never given your life to Christ because you never understood, it's not simply getting cleaned up, it's receiving new life and new power. You can receive him tonight. There is over on my left, your right, an area over here called the prayer room, tent. What is it? Box, barn? I don't know what it is. There's something over there. <laughs> if you're not a Christian, you know you need to be one. Please don't put that off. Make your way there. Somebody will be there to talk to you, pray with you, and help you. There may be some of us tonight, and we're Christians. And we've been living constantly in defeat. And by the way, don't see temptation as defeat. If you get tempted, well, I'm sorry, live with it. There is no way out of that. I know it plagues you. I know it makes you feel dirty. I know it makes you feel disgusted with yourself sometimes, the kind of temptations you battle with. You can't stop the cuckoo flying over your nest, to quote a proverb. You can stop making a, making a... No, flying over your head. You can stop making a nest in your head. You can stop them roosting by saying, Lord Jesus, although I'm living in a world where this law of sin, like law of gravity, is pulling me down, thank you for your life and spirit and power. And I trust you. It set me free. But there are other issues we'll address tomorrow night. We'll build on that, although tomorrow night will also be addressed to those who as yet do not know Christ. But it will also build on the kind of thing we've said tonight. We're going to pray together. We'll have a moment first of prayer, of silent prayer, maybe in your own heart. Some of you need to repent of your own sense of self-sufficiency. You've been trying your best for Jesus. Fail to fully understand the implications of what he said. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. But that through Christ, you can do all things because it's his Holy Spirit that will set you free. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for every man, woman, every young person here tonight. Some of us have been Christians for many years. Some many, many, many years, and their lives have been an exhibition of your presence and your power. 
Others have looked at them and seen Christ, and they've been grateful. We thank you for them. Others of us, Lord Jesus, have been Christians just a short while, and we find ourselves fumbling and stumbling and falling, but thank you. Your grace is sufficient, and you'll teach us. We're going to be patient. But Lord, I pray especially for those here tonight, some of us who may have been a Christian for a long time, but we know that the old nature gets the better of us again and again and again. When no one's looking, we're in the dirt. We're rolling in the puddle because we've never learned. We can't improve the old nature. We simply crucify it, reckon it, crucified with Christ. And instead, allow the Lord Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, to be our life and our strength and our power. He's made unto us righteousness. He doesn't give it to us. He is himself our righteousness. It's his presence, his power. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus, because it means every one of us here tonight can live a life that is holy. Because it's in your power. It's in your strength. It's supernatural. We would never dare pat ourselves on the back. We know we can't do it. We trust you in humility every day to lead us and enable us and empower us. And so take your word to our hearts and by the Holy Spirit, make it make sense. We want to understand it. Then by the Holy Spirit, make it a reality that many of us from this Easter convention, 1992, will never be the same again because we go home to live in the power of the risen Christ who reigns and rules in our hearts. Make this real, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. And for those who will travel home from here tonight, take them safely, we pray. And tomorrow morning as we wake to think in particular of that wonderful resurrection morning, help us to be concerned to know not only the history, that day when he rose from the dead, but to know the power of that resurrection, enabling us to live godly, Christ-like lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to have a closing song. I think the meeting is over. You'll pardon me saying one thing. Uh, Bill Bryce very graciously earlier mentioned a couple of books that I've written. What I've talked about tonight, that it is the Spirit of God living in us who empowers us. Both of those books are about that theme. They're different aspects. But I mention that because some of you will be fumbling and stumbling. And if those of you have helped you, because uh, both of them really look at the fact that we cannot live the Christian life apart from the work of the Spirit of Christ in us. And if that will be of help to you, uh, that's what they're about. But thank you for coming. If you need counsel, you want to pray with somebody, go down here. There will be counselors there in just a moment. And uh, God bless you. It is 9.43, 8.43. But don't blame me for that. Blame Ken. <laughs>